From Luminary Media and Built It Productions, it's Wisdom from the Top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, the story of Doug Conant and Campbell's Soup. How much money was Campbell's Soup losing a year in, in 2000, 2001? Well, our earnings were basically cut in half, which cut our, our value in half. <laughs> we were being investigated by both uh, the SEC and the Justice Department. It was just ugly across the board, and uh, the company was largely in freefall. How Doug Conant saved Campbell's Soup from freefall and turned diversity and inclusion into its secret weapon of success. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Generative AI is not a one-size-fits-all. If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill. And Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit Anthropic.com slash Claude today. So think about Campbell's Soup for a second. It's about as iconic as any American brand, like Coca-Cola or Ford or Levi's. Andy Warhol's painting of a Campbell's Soup can is one of the most recognized pieces of pop art, worth millions of dollars. And for much of its history, starting in 1869... Campbell's could ride its own coattails. It was the American soup brand of choice. But somewhere around the late 1990s, Campbell's soup hit a wall. Diets were changing, lifestyles were changing, and people just weren't eating canned soup like they did in previous decades. And at that time, Campbell's soup was in big trouble. Consumers started to move away from canned soups and started moving to fresh, prepared meals in the supermarkets. What kept Campbell's propped up were its other brands, things like Pepperidge Farms and Prego Spaghetti Sauce, even Godiva Chocolates. But none of that was enough to keep Campbell's from sinking, and fast. 
So in 2001, the company threw a Hail Mary and hired Doug Conant to come in and save the place. At the time, Doug was the president of Nabisco Foods, where he launched a game-changing product called Snackwells. It was a product that appealed to people who wanted less fat in their diets. But Campbell's was going to pose a pretty big challenge for Doug because the magnitude of its crisis was even bigger than he imagined. Now, the thing to know about Doug is that many years before he'd become a food executive and crisis manager, he learned how to face failure and loss in an entirely different arena, on the tennis court. I found that I could actually hit a ball against a wall and didn't have to talk to anybody. <laughs> and I got very good at hitting a ball against a wall. And, uh, and then ultimately, I learned to hit a ball with people, and uh, my tennis career somewhat blossomed. I was a very good competitive high school tennis player, was recruited to Northwestern as a scholarship tennis player, and it paid my education. You must have been a really good tennis player to get to get recruited by Northwestern to play on the team. Well, I, I, it was a blessing. I, w- I was good enough, and I was one of the better tennis players for my age in the Midwest. And again, it paid my education yeah. uh, at Northwestern, which was an incredible blessing. You hear a lot of people talk about sports as a really important part of their development in leadership, right? Particularly team sports like baseball or soccer. Tennis is an individual game. I mean, all of the pressure is on you as an individual. You fail or succeed as an individual. Um, obviously, you, you can become part of a tennis team, but most of the time, it's just you out there. How did how did that experience sort of inform the way you would go on to develop as a leader? Uh, to be honest, I, I found it was enormously helpful. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize how helpful at the time because leadership is an inside-out process, and you sort of have to master yourself and how you want to connect with the world before you can effectively connect with others. Hmm. And in tennis, I really had to learn to understand myself, what worked, what didn't work, and the things I needed to do to be more effective and efficient. And all of that ultimately served me well when I went into my corporate career. Uh, You know, if I was doing a presentation or something, I wasn't brilliant, but I was very comfortable Hmm. in in, in, being in front of others and uh, articulating a point of view. Uh, Whereas I saw other people who hadn't had that kind of competitive experience of having to be out there performing in front of others. Yeah. uh, Wilting a little bit under the pressure. Hmm. But it all started with uh, learning to... uh, be self-sufficient on the tennis court without help from anyone else. Were you ever an angry tennis player? Did you hate losing, or were you pretty good at just dealing with failure? Uh, No, I hated losing. (laughs) And uh, I broke more than my fair share of rackets, I think. Well, but junior players, uh, you know, you've got a lot of emotions, and you're out there by yourself. You're not getting any coaching. You're not allowed to. And so you manage your emotions as best you can. And ultimately, you had to learn how to process that and move on. Uh, But uh, no, I was not a particularly good loser. But, you know, Roger Federer, who's a quintessential person of calm demeanor now. Yeah. Roger Federer was a poor loser in the juniors. <laughs> and he's uh, he would be the first to tell you. And yeah. so, uh, you know, we, we all, as we were maturing as young men, 
uh, had moments that we weren't particularly proud of. So, all right. So, Doug, uh, you go to college on a tennis scholarship, and then, uh, and then eventually you, you would go on to business school uh, at Northwestern. Um, was that was that a deliberate decision? Did you think, okay, uh, I'm you know I'm going to go into business because this is what I really want to do, or was it more like I'm not really sure what I want to do, so uh, you know I might as well get an MBA? It was it was not a calling at that point. Uh, hmm. My father had been a business person and started a small plastic packaging company, and I was graduating from undergraduate and wasn't sure what to do next. Was interested in tennis, but the uh, my outlook was not particularly good uh, for being able to compete at a high level. And so I applied to business school, and uh, I was able to uh, get into uh, – uh, the Northwestern Graduate School of Management. And what was great was I was able to work for the tennis team and get some of my uh, graduate school uh, paid for as well as, as an assistant coach. So uh, it just all seemed to naturally fit together. So I guess, I mean, the the right out of graduate school, you get a job offer from General Mills, and then this begins a lifelong career in the food business, which we will get to. Um, was were you sort of attuned to working in the food industry? Was that oh, or was gosh. it just the first job that kind of came came to you? It was it was a good job. When I was in graduate school, I had an advisor. His name was Phil Kotler, and Phil Kotler wrote the book for marketing executives in the twentieth century. Hmm. And he classically created this paradigm of thinking about the four P's for marketing. And uh, I remember I was in a counseling session with him. And do you remember the movie The Graduate with Dustin Hoffman? When he's by the pool and the guy pulls him over and puts his arm around him and says, I have one word for you, plastics. And in my case, Phil had two words for me, and it was brand management, Hmm. which was the new in vogue uh, place for marketing leaders Hmm. where you were responsible for not for managing marketing activities, but for creating uh, brands and Hmm. bringing them to life. General Mills and Procter & Gamble were two of the first companies to champion this new way of marketing. So I was given an offer to, to go to General Mills, and uh, I started there. The first day of work, I showed up. I had a, uh, an afro and a headband, uh, a line where a headband had been on my forehead, and a Fu Manchu mustache. Wow. And right. This something is 1976, Ur- so just this to put it in context. 70, yeah. yeah, 76, okay. and I had brown earth shoes on. Nice. And I went to work that day. And everybody was wearing white shirts and pinstripe suits. <laughs> Talk about a fish out of water. Uh, about two months later, I had, uh, I had white shirts and pinstripe suits <laughs> and a haircut. And uh, so I, I tried. I, I worked hard to fit in there. By the way, what were the four Ps? Product, place, promotion, price. Nice. All right, so this this mentor professor says go into brand management. That's that's where it's at in the seventies. This is where it's going, right? So you go to General Mills to brand management, and uh, 
I guess, you know, right away, you've got to learn about the products that they make, right? I mean, they're, they're doing, what, Betty Crocker. They're, they're making a bunch of different things, right? Yeah, yeah. They, it was, uh, we were a large diversified food company headquartered in Minneapolis. We had General Mills cereals. We also had Betty Crocker products, which were very lar- popular at the time. And uh, I started my career working on Betty Crocker potato buds and specialty potatoes. Oof. Which was hilarious. My mother just couldn't believe it because my one of my first jobs was to write the back panel copy for the package <laughs> on Betty Crocker potato buds and specialty potatoes. And my mother just got such a laugh out of the fact that I was Betty Crocker. And uh, at any rate, so I, I worked on all kinds of products. And I must say, though, I had a I did not hit the ground running because I had never worked in a corporate environment before. I was initially a fish out of water. I can remember my first performance review, which was six months after I started. And, you know, your boss writes this performance review, and then your boss's boss has to sign it with a comment. And my boss's boss, uh, his only comment was, you should be looking for another job. (laughs) So when I talk about starting my career with a thud, that was it. But, you know... uh, I'd had adversity before, and you can you either wilt in the face of it or you stand up and you thrive and you meet the challenge head on and you work your way through it. So you're you're really starting to kind of get your feet wet in in brand management, marketing, and uh, and what did that mean? I mean, this was a I mean, it's does it sounds crazy now in in the year 2019 to think of this is an innovative thing, but I guess in the late 70s this was a big deal. Companies were like, yeah, brand management, this is a new thing. What did that actually practically mean? What did you do? Well, what it meant was that as a brand manager, you worked with everyone in the company uh, to help an individual brand. Let's whether it's uh, Betty Crocker. Dessert mixes, which I was a brand manager for my third year there. You worked with everyone in the company to make sure that Betty Crocker brownies, puddings, and pie crusts were putting their best foot forward with the consumer every day in terms of the way the customers were promoting them. And when I say customers, I mean people like uh, your local grocery stores. Right, right. And you are also in charge of developing, uh, overseeing the new product development for that category that you were managing to keep hmm. the category and the brand vital. You were the conductor, if you will, of the orchestra around that piece of business that you managed. It became the way to manage consumer products in the, in the 70s, 80s, hmm. 90s, and 2000s. You must have eaten a lot of uh, powdered potato. Well, let me tell you, when I was the product manager on Betty Crocker's uh, brownies, puddings, cookie mixes, and pie crust, (laughs) I gained my freshman 15. All right. So you you were there for, I think, at least 10 years at General Mills, maybe a little longer. Uh, And then in the late 80s, you you get a a job offer at Kraft, which I'm assuming is a huge competitor, was was that a big deal? Were were, were people at General Mills like you're going to Kraft? No, actually, uh, it wasn't a big deal at all because I worked for General Mills for uh, ten years, and uh, my first six years I worked in the food group. Mm. But General Mills developed this strategy that said we can do brand management for more than just food. 
So they created the General Mills Toy Group and they bought 13 toy companies. And they said, we can do brand management in toys and games. They bought uh, specialty retail shops like Eddie Bauer and Talbot's and said, we can do brand management in specialty retail. They said, we can do brand management in other areas like uh, fashion. And they Monet Jewelry and Izod at one point in time. Huh. So they the strategy of brand management and being brilliant with the consumer was the game plan for General Mills at that point in time. And so I went, I had an opportunity to go uh, be director of marketing for Parker Brothers Toys and Games in Boston. Huh. And uh, so, I mean, I, I, it was a great s- situation. And I, my wife and I uh, and our one son moved out to Boston, had another son while we were there. We were the most popular family on the block because the kids would be sitting on the stoop when we got home. When I got home to see what I was bringing home from work. So I mean, you'd gone from you'd gone from food to toys in the same company, mm-hmm. and uh, I mean, it sounds like it was a pretty seamless transition. It's just another brand that you're managing. Well, it was an, well, in that sense, it was. But what I I mean, in over time, I've seen that every sector has nuances that. Uh, you can either leverage or can be your undoing. Uh, in the toy and game business, uh, or General Mills ultimately decided it wasn't for them, and they sold off the entire toy unit uh, three years later. At which point, I went, I, I lost my job. I went into work oh, one day, wow. and uh, senior vice president of marketing uh, uh, asked me to come up to his office as I went into the front door. The uh, receptionist sent me up there and. And the senior vice president of marketing uh, wouldn't look at me, and he said, uh, "Doug, your job has been eliminated. You need you need to be out of here by noon." Wow! You had no idea this was coming. No, no, I was naive. But in ten years of my career, it was over in a snap. Uh, I went home to my wife, my two small children, and my one very large mortgage, mm. uh, devastated, and. Uh, and then I was looking for a job for a year, which was an incredible, uh, humbling, incredibly humbling experience. Wow. So you were, I mean, you were in your mid-30s, I guess. Mm-hmm. Two kids. Yeah. Out of a job. Out of work. Wow. That must have been stressful. And we had just moved to Boston three oh. years earlier to the North Shore of Boston, Marblehead, Old Town, Marblehead, Massachusetts. We loved it there, but I didn't really know anybody. Hmm. And all of a sudden, I was out of work there from the Midwest trying to find my way. Wow. And uh, an introvert and not a very good interviewer. Uh, so it, it took me about a year. And then I landed the job with Kraft, uh, uh, going back to Chicago, going back to the food business, which I knew pretty well. And uh, had a good run there. During that year, I mean, from the time you lost your job to the time you you found a new job at Kraft, did you ever get down? I mean, that must have been a hard oh, year. I was devastated. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, it was probably the most devastating moment of my career was losing my job. Really, uh, it was a uh, it was a crucible moment in my career I where bet. I I realized I needed to. If I wanted to change the outcome of my career work, I needed to change my behavior. Mm. 
and I needed to become a real student of, of leadership and of, uh, of the work I was doing. So a, a year after losing your job, you get an offer from Kraft. You move the family to Chicago. Same kind of job, brand management at Kraft, back into the food business? Back into the food business, I took a, a little less than lateral job, hmm. but they kept me whole on salary. It was a job I knew I could do. Hmm. I, I love working with the people in the food industry. Uh, the food industry is not the meteoric category where, you know, it's, you're, you're not flying by the seat of your pants. Right. It's a sort of, it's a reap what you sow kind of industry. Yeah. So I went, ba- I went back to Kraft. I took this job as a category manager of a category, horrible salad dressings. And I managed that and had a good run there. And, and you know, I had gotten the car. I mean, I, I got a great parking spot. <laughs> I had people working for me. And uh, things were looking up. But I was working for a very demanding boss. And I was talking to the fellow who was the head of corporate strategy at the time over lunch. And I said, you know, if there's ever an opportunity for me to come work in the corporate strategy group, I'd be happy to do it because he knew I was a little frustrated where I was. Less than a month later, he was promoted to being president of Kraft. And then I get a call from him two weeks later, and he says, you know that, you know, you told me you'd be willing to do anything. And I said, yeah. He said, "Uh, well, I, I don't have anything at your level, but I have a director of strategy opening, but it's it's very different kind of job, uh, and by and you lose your parking spot, you lose your staff, uh, and all of the optics. And he said, but you'll learn a lot. Hmm. I really couldn't say no. I took the job, and it was a uh, another blessing because I learned so much in that job. But again, it was like a lateral. Yeah, it wasn't. I did not have this meteoric rise. I guess I'm slow. I just kept plodding along. Hmm. So, so okay, I guess after a few years at Kraft, you went uh, over to Nabisco, the company that makes cookies. Uh, and, and that's when your career like goes to the next level. How, how did that happen? Well, yeah, I started out as a general manager and uh, of a small division, their refrigerator products division, and then I was only there for a year, but we had a really good year. And then they asked me to go be the senior vice president of marketing for the, the Nabisco Biscuit Company, which was the cookies and crackers and the largest part of Nabisco by far. <laughs> and I really didn't want to go. I wanted to be the general manager, not a head of marketing. But uh, the CEO at Nabisco prevailed upon me to win one for the Gipper. Yeah. And so I went there for two years, and we had a, uh, a really good run in terms of our performance and uh, in cookies and crackers. And uh, uh, Fig Newtons were good, but Oreos, yeah. Chips Ahoy, Ritz crackers, we, yeah. had a, we, had, we, we really had a formidable uh, portfolio right. of brands, and uh, we had a a great run while I was there. All right, so you so so you had gone from General Mills to Kraft to Nabisco. You get to Nabisco around ninety two. By ninety five, you become the president of Nabisco. 
by that point, I'm think I'm imagining you must have started to think of yourself as a leader. You must have thought, okay, I'm I'm a leader now. Like this is this is where I'm headed. I don't know about that. I was just trying to do the best I could <laughs> at the time, and I everything in front of me. I thought, you know, I can do this. Uh, the one step between where I was head of marketing for the Nabisco Biscuit Company and when I was made president of the Nabisco Foods Company uh, was they moved me to sales. I had never run a sales organization, which was hilarious. They, the CEO said, I know I've, I hired you as a general manager. I asked you to take this sidestep over to marketing. You're not going to believe what I'm asking you to do now. Would you run the sales organization? And I looked at him and I said, who are you kidding? I'm an introvert and I can't play golf. How can I possibly run a sales organization? And he's, I said, do I have to do it? And he said, no. I said, okay, I pass. He said, fine. The next day I get a call from his executive assistant and, Rita, and I say, Rita, do I have a choice today? And Rita says, no, you had a choice yesterday. Today you're going to take the job. Wow. So I went back over to his office, and when I walked in, I said, John, I've been thinking about it. I want the job. And I ran the sales organization for a couple of years, and I learned I could do, I could do it. And uh, it also helped me learn all the products that we sold because this, all the products went through the sales organization. And it put me in position to ultimately be president of the Nabisco Foods Company, which did not include cookies and crackers. It was everything else Nabisco It was like made. dog biscuits and planter's nuts and Lifesavers candies, right? Things like yeah. that. It was a large portfolio of brands, and we ran it for five years. And ultimately, we were the be best performing food company in the United States over those five years. And uh, so that's what led me to being considered as a candidate to be a CEO. Right. We had a great run for five years. I demonstrated we could do this under difficult circumstances, and the outlook was quite good for the next five. Hmm. And so we were acquired, actually by Kraft, the company I had left, and then I was recruited to Campbell Soup Company. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. 
absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Generative AI is not a one-size-fits-all. If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill. And Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. So you, uh, you, you, you're president of Bisco Food Company for about five years, and then you get recruited by Campbell's to become their CEO. You accept this job, and you go there in 2001. Set the scene for me. What was going on at the Campbell Soup Company in 2001 when you got there? Well, the first the first piece of this is uh, before I got there, I was being recruited. I'm quite sure I was not the first person they were looking for because I was just focused on doing my job. I wasn't ever looking for the next yeah. job. And there were people in our industry who were looking for the next job and uh, were higher profile. And I'm sure we're considered for this job, but they ultimately uh, tracked me down. And uh, I went for an interview, I, uh, and they were very anxious to, to meet me. So I went for an interview in New York, and I had lunch with six directors at once. They interviewed me, and before I could finish answering one question, another question came at me. Over two hours, it must have been 100 questions. And I answered them as best I could, but I was exhausted afterwards and didn't feel it had gone very well. And I was thinking, well, that was a nice interview, but uh, I'll just, I'll see where the next sure. one leads. And two days later, I get a call back and uh, the executive search person says, that went great. <laughs> they want to do it again. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, I don't want to go through another two hours like that. So uh, the weekend before I was meeting with them, I called together a few of my friends and we spent the weekend tearing apart all the publicly available materials for the Campbell Soup Company and did a Campbell Soup Company revitalization framework, put it in a PowerPoint presentation, said, here's, and I, this was my framework, I said, here's what I think the problem is, and here's what I think the solution is, and here's how I would lead this effort. And I went back with a canvas bag full of PowerPoint presentations <laughs> for my next interview with the same six directors, and they started shooting questions at me again. And I, at that point, said, you know, I've been thinking about the 100 questions we covered in the last meeting. And I think this would be helpful to you to see what I would, how I would respond to the situation the company's facing. Hmm. And I presented the revitalization framework to them. Yeah. We covered it for a few hours. It was very clear what I would do and how I would do it. And uh, ultimately, I received an offer to to actually bring that plan to life. Well, but, but before that, what did you know about Campbell Soup? Like, Campbell Soup was in trouble, right? It was like major trouble. Campbell Soup was highly troubled, and uh, 
what what we knew about the, the company was that it lost half its market value in in one year, and that's hard to do for a established uh, food company. This is the biggest uh, soup company in the world. Oh yeah, and other products too. They we also own Pepperidge Farm, Godiva. V8, Prego pasta sauces. It was a large diversified food company. Uh, at the time, 24,000 employees. How much money was Campbell's Soup losing a year in, in 2000, 2001? Well, we weren't, we weren't losing money. We were making money, but our earnings were basically cut in half, which cut our, our value in half. So it was just not a healthy situation. We were also we had had some bad business practices before I got there, and we we were being investigated by both uh, the SEC and the Justice Department. It was just ugly across the board, wow. and uh, the company was largely in freefall. I, I read that I read Doug that of all the major food companies in the world, that Campbell's was the rock-bottom performer. What was the problem? Were people just not buying soup? Was that, like, what was going on? Well, uh, basically, it had been a great value proposition. Soup had been a terrific value proposition. Because it's cheap to make and, and you can sell it for a reasonable profit? Yeah, and we owned largely, you could say, we controlled the market in soup. And soup had to, happened to be a, a very large and prosperous category. So we, what happened was we became very aggressive with our pricing. We took our prices up dramatically, which helped our earnings. But then our volume started to fall because we had priced so aggressively. And as our earnings started to fall, we started to bolster the earnings. We cut the spending that supported the brand and artificially inflated earnings for a little while. But then as spending was cut, the brand continued to decline. And, uh, and then we said, well, we've got to implement more productivity to offset, uh, to keep earnings up. So we have, to, uh, we have to be even more efficient. And we got to a point where we were basically taking the chicken out of chicken noodle soup. And, uh, and so we ran out of productivity room. So the products were compromised. We weren't supporting them, and they were high priced. Huh. And then we got to a point where we said, "Well, how can, we can't afford to have all these people working on this business because uh, it's in freefall." And so then they started firing people. And then, and in one day, they fired uh, about half of the R and D organization. Wow. And in the food industry. The R&D organization is the lifeblood of, the, of, of your future growth. And so we had just, we were in what my friend Jim Kiltz called the circle of doom. Yeah. We were promising to do better and we, everything we were doing was compromising our ability to do better. That was the situation that I was encountering when I got there. All right, let's put this in the context. You became, in 2001, the 11th person to hold the title of president and CEO of Campbell's. And it's a 132-year history. It's like a Supreme Court justice. That's like, well. that's like <laughs> very few very few people hold that job, right? I mean, presumably, you have to kind of just listen for, for the first couple of months. What do you notice when you get there? What, what do you actually notice that you didn't realize before you walked into the door? First of all, I was... I was relatively young. I was 49 at the time to be running a large company like that. And so I started uh, with this theme, 
day one. And the theme was expect action because that's what they expected. Yeah. But I also made it clear it was going to be very thoughtful action. And I also made it clear that it was going to be, we, while we had to be in touch with meeting the needs of the market, in my opinion, we needed to be more in touch with meeting the needs of the employees. And so, you know, I my first day, first hour, first day when I met with the company and over, when I was introduced to the company, I said, you know, we have to work together in this endeavor and we can't expect you to honor our evolving agenda as a company until we demonstrate to you tangibly that we're going to honor your evolving agenda as a contributor. So we have to we have to show up for you and we have to trust that in the fullness of time you will show up increasingly for our company. Huh. And uh I find as a leader it's awfully important to sort of declare yourself and say here's how here's what we want to do but here's how I'm going to create here's the kind of environment I want to create to accomplish this. And uh so Day one, I created an employee-centric conversation that said, we got to meet your needs, but we're counting on you to help me, help us meet ours so that we can get out of this hole. Yeah. Did everybody understand what the stakes were at Campbell's? Did people well, realize? I think, they, uh, I think everyone was fearful. There have been many layoffs. Uh, the, the boogeyman was around every corner. People knew there was a lot of risk in the environment. Yeah. I don't think anybody believed me when I when I sort of declared myself in that day. Uh, I think some of the naysayers might have underestimated my, my persistence. <laughs> I also didn't overpromise and underdeliver. Look, I had made it clear to the, the board and I made it clear to the company. In the next three years, we are going to transform this company, but we are going to go from being uncompetitive every day to being competitive on a good day by the end of year three. Yeah. And I know this is going to this sounds not very aspirational, but it's realistic. My my perspective uh was very much shaped by some words Stephen Covey had shared with me in, in prior years. He said, "Doug, you cannot talk your way out of something you behave your way into. <laughs> you got to behave your way out of it." And we had behaved our way into a mess, and you were naive to think that this was going to turn around on a dime. So we committed to digging out of the hole over three years, and that we were going to thoughtfully and smartly put the building blocks in place to be able to do that. You essentially said to the board, listen, the next three years are going to be rough. We're, we're, we're going to continue to probably lose money or, or, or earnings will continue to decline. But while we do that, I've got a plan to help us get out of it by year three. So just be patient because it's going to be rough. And you go to the company, you become the CEO, you discover this toxic culture. I have to imagine that as a new CEO of this company, people are looking at you and thinking, okay, this is the turnaround guy. He's going to fire me. He's going to fire all of us. Well, I think some of that was, I mean, they, they could have expected that. Uh, look, as a leader, my experience, you've got three years to, to be three on years. track. Okay. Three years. Right. You always have three years. The first year, it's the other guy's fault. Right. <laughs> the, the second year, look, we're doing the best we can. We're learning, and we have little green shoots that are suggesting yeah. we're going to do well. And by year three, you own it. 
Right. I don't care in your work, your line of work or my line of work. You've got three years. Right. So I I was very clear with the board. And I also, you know, this this will sound funny, but I didn't need this job. I wanted to do it. But I told the board when they hired me, if there's somebody better to do this job, you ought to hire them. Hmm. This is a this is a, a going to be a challenging situation. I think I can do it. I think it's going to take time, and here's how I think this will ultimately play out. And I maintained at that point of view the whole decade I was there because I wanted to see Campbell thrive. Right. And uh, that's all I cared about, and I was going to be just fine. I wanted a, a win for the company, and I assumed it would be a win for me in the fullness of time, but. Uh, that was the approach I took. The board supported that and supported me for a decade, and we had a had a very good run. All right. So it sounds like there, there were obviously some challenges with brand management. That had to be re, reimagined, right? You had to kind of think about the brand and how to revive the soup and the different the, the goldfish crackers and whatever it is. But it sounds like the other huge challenge was just the management of the company, this toxic work environment, people who were disengaged. Um, how did you – what was your plan to get people excited and reengaged? How do you get people if, – if people are coming to work and they're not committed to their work, how do you what, – what, what was your playbook for, for inspiring them? Well, look, to be honest, I had never been a CEO before. Yeah. So in many ways, I didn't know my ass from my elbow right. uh, as a CEO. I knew as much as you could know without being a CEO. I did know that if the people weren't actively engaged in their work, we didn't stand a chance. <laughs> and uh, so we had to have people that were fully engaged, that were competent, had high character, and liked working together. And so we said, look, this is the kind of culture we want to create, people that are high character, high competence, and where there's good chemistry. We hope that's you. And over the next three years, we're going to, re we're going to rebuild the culture to be pointed in that direction. And we started to lean into this notion at the time, which was fairly new with the Gallup organization, employee engagement. Now it's You hire the Gallup polling firm to come in and do some, some Yeah, they were the snooping. leaders and still are, in yeah. my opinion, in evaluating how engaged employees are. And, right. and there was all kinds of leading indicators that suggested the more engaged people were, uh, the better the company performed. And I needed, you know, you can't manage a culture change unless you can measure it. I mean, culture is viewed as this amorphous thing and I'll know it when I see it kind of thing. Yeah. But I found that it was important to be able to measure it and promote discussion around things that were working and things that weren't working. So we did an employee engagement survey, and the first one in 2001, we found out that we had the lowest employee engagement anecdotally in the Fortune 500. How did you, I mean, when you saw that, I mean, that's rough. I mean, is that, did people just not feel valued or did they not feel like their ideas were heard or did they just feel like they were cogs in a system? Was that yes. what they were saying? All, it was, it was, there's, a, this is a complex undertaking, but uh, look, there are four, four things in, in employee engagement that matter. It's about living, loving, learning, and leaving a legacy. Mm. 
First of all, you have to have good living conditions, and the hygiene in the place has to be adequate. And we didn't have good, adequate facilities. Uh, then loving, you have to feel valued uh, for your work. And there are specific things that you have to evidence to so that people feel valued. And then learning, opportunities to learn and grow. And ultimately, the in terms of employee engagement, the highest level is leaving a legacy. And, and that's about doing something that transcends the ordinary. Look, we all spend more time either working or thinking about doing our work than any other thing we do, including being with our families. So our focus on employee engagement was about getting the living, loving, learning, and leaving a legacy piece in place. We had it. We did it for three years. We focused maniacally on it the whole decade I was there. But the first three years, it was a heavy lift. Yeah. We had managers who were not leading in an inspired way, however. They were keeping their heads down and sort of it's like the game of whack-a-mole. Yeah. They, they were afraid to lift their heads up because if they screwed up, they'd lose their job. Right. That wasn't good enough. So we started getting feedbacks on how the top 350 leaders were doing. And I said, year one, I'm not even going to look at your individual results. Year two, I'm going to see the trends. And year three, I'm going to pay attention to your specific results. <laughs> and, uh, and I did. And in the first three years, we turned over 300 of the top 350 leaders in the company. Wow, you turned over 300 of 350. I think it's the most in Fortune 500 history. You had to replace 300 people of the top 350 leaders. Yeah, but 150 were promoted from within. So we had young folks or more junior folks who were hungering to lead in a more inspired way. Right. And they had leaders who were just trying to go along to get along, yeah. which wasn't going to cut it. Huh. So we promoted 150 from within, but we also did hire 150 from outside the company, from blue chip packaged goods companies uh, who knew what it looked like to win. And I, again, I didn't know my ass from my elbow. And I'm thinking, is this crazy? Am I going too fast here? But I couldn't imagine what would happen if we didn't do it. So we just kept going along. And what was interesting to me was, as we did this, employee engagement for the whole company began to soar. Because, you know, while I was worried about the top 350, which was sort of my job as a CEO, there were 19,650 people out there waiting to see if I was going to deal with the real issue, which was the leadership of the company. And as soon as we started to methodically and in a caring way deal with these folks, uh, everyone else became more engaged. And we went from the worst engagement in the Fortune 500 to the best engagement in the Fortune 500. You you are a self-described introvert. You're 49, Mm -hmm. you get to the company, you didn't even want to go to the sales in Nabisco because you're not a glad handler, you're not a golfer, you're not, you don't, you're not a networker. Well, now you've got to be the cheerleader in chief for a company that is struggling. Did you, when when you became the president and CEO of Campbell's, did you just kind of naturally find your charisma or did you have to work really hard to find charisma? Because you have to be charismatic to inspire people, right? I don't think you need to be flamboyant to get their attention. Hmm. Uh, they're they're paying attention, and uh, 
But what you need to do is you need to declare yourself, say, here's where we're going and here's what, what we're doing and here's how we're going to do it. And then you need to work the plan. And if you screw up, you need to acknowledge I screwed up with all sincerity and great authenticity. You need to course correct and you need to move on. Yeah. And I think I found that people appreciated that at Campbell. So, Doug, as you, as you kind of implemented this turnaround strategy, when you gave yourself three mm-hmm. years, how did you, I mean, you had come from this job in Nabisco, and now you're in this new position, and you've got to be the leader. How did you begin to kind of develop a leadership philosophy, something that actually you could go back to and say, okay, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. How did that process begin? Well, I actually started... Uh... With I, I when Stephen Covey first wrote the book Seven Habits of Highly Effective yeah. People, I was taken with that book, and I actually went out and to Sundance, Utah, and took a course with him. Hmm. And uh, and in that course, he uh, the you know uh, the first habit is uh, is all about be proactive, and then the second habit is begin with the end in mind, and so. Uh, on a personal basis, I was trying to sort of be more intentional and be proactive and figure out kind of what end do I have in mind for my life. And then when I started running Nabisco, I found that it wasn't only important to, uh, to me on a personal level, it also had profound impact on how I led the organization. And so I started it in Nabisco. We had a great run there. I just basically took that philosophy of be proactive, begin with the end in mind, and then start to cultivate uh, a, a cadre of leaders who have that kind of approach to life. And I also happen to be a student of the craft of leadership. And it all sort of fed into my Nabisco experience and then my Campbell experience. As you started to um, kind of work on improving employee engagement and morale, there was the other side, which was you had to sell soup. You had to sell products. Um, how, did, how do you – I mean, Campbell's Soup, iconic, Andy Warhol product. But I can imagine in the early 2000s, people are thinking, yeah, canned soup, I, you know, that's not my thing. And, well, you know, was, there's a lot of like fresh, um, you know, cold in the cold uh, refrigerated aisle soups and coming. How are you going to sell – how did you – how were you able to, to kind of come up with a plan to sell more soup? Well, uh, there were, uh, first of all, we had a lot of other products. Right. And so, which helped. We were also the world's largest vegetable juice uh, purveyor with V8, V8 and right. other brands. We were also the third largest uh, baked snack company in the world. And here you would know that as Pepperidge Farm. Yep. So we had, we had other core businesses in addition to North American soup. And, uh, and so those were also, both of those large uh, categories were on a pretty good growth trajectory. So we leaned into innovating in vegetable-based juices and into baked snacks. So we started to grow faster there. And then we had a, a, a plan to uh, grow the soup business. Uh, and it was very f- much focused on meeting the consumer needs. And it turned out that, that uh, soup was uh, being consumed differently. And uh, as we were a victim of what I'll call now meal simplification, it used to be you would have soup and then you would have dinner. Right. 
and there was this meal simplification going on where it was just dinner. And, there, and so we were being eliminated out of a lot of uh, meal occasions because they were, they, it was too complex. We, it was a two-step process. And the, 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 the number one reason uh, people w- would report that they didn't have soup was they didn't think of it. And the time, because they have it in their home. Uh, but the only time they thought about it was when there was inclement weather or when they were sick. And so on a, on a cold, snowy day, they thought of soup. Right. If, if someone had a cold, they thought of Campbell's chicken noodle soup. Right. So we had to get into the everyday consumption mode. And there were certain consumer issues uh, I'll, I'll just pick one, uh, or I'll pick a couple of them. One was uh, it was the hardest, the soup aisle. Actually, we had three of the top ten items in the entire grocery store <laughs> were soup items. It was Campbell's chicken noodle, Campbell tomato soup, and Campbell cream of mushroom. <laughs> and uh, But when you went into the soup section, you couldn't find the soups. You, that you were looking for because they all looked the same and the right. sections were a mess. Right. Uh, and people were not particularly patient. We were the hardest section to shop other than cough and cold remedies in the entire store. So what we found was we could create this, what we called an IQ shelf maximizer, where we made it easier to shop the aisle with this gravity-fed shelving system that we put in all the large stores which made it much easier to find the products you What's were looking for. What's a gravity-fed uh, system? The uh, cans would be put on their sides, and they'd be put in these sleeves, which had pictures of the large pictures of the particular flavor variety that you were uh, looking for. Okay. And so you could actually see what it was. You didn't have to read all the red and white labels and try and decipher Which one was which? Yeah. And, and it would roll and, down this gravity-fed It would feeder, roll down right? and okay. you would take it out. And it also was easier for people to stock in the store. So it, it worked for the customer. It also worked for the consumer. One other thing, you know, the, the microwave was invented in 1947. Yeah. And uh, this is now 2001. And all... The world had innovated in microwave technology for all kinds of products. But we were so good at making canned soup that would run so fast on our equipment that we, you know, if we went to a microwavable container, it would slow us down and we couldn't make it as efficiently. Hmm. Uh, Meanwhile, microwavable containers were what was selling. So we started putting some of our products in microwavable containers that people could have for lunch or take to work or have for a snack at home. And to the IQ Shelf Maximizer and the microwavable platform breathed new life into the category. We acquired some organic brands, Wolfgang Puck, organic soups. Mm-hmm. We started innovating around soup formats uh, with refrigerated soups and with... Uh, other kinds of soups that were more in, in tune with what consumers were looking for. And we grew soup sales for eight straight years. So by the time you left, what, what was the state of the company? Well, we had, uh, we, we had built a, a, a terrific continuous improvement machine. Uh, 
We had delivered earnings growth for 10 straight years. We had record high return on invested capital, record high cash flow, and also record high employee engagement. So uh, we were hitting on all cylinders. You know, one of the things that I've, I've, I've seen you quoted saying, and I guess it's kind of become your motto, which is um, you said to win in the marketplace, you must first win in the workplace. And the thing I love about that is that so many companies, so many CEOs, they answer first and foremost to their board and their shareholders at the expense of their employees. But that 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 motto to win in the marketplace, you must first win in the workplace, is exactly right. If you don't right, if you don't have committed, engaged employees who feel valued, who feel like you know they're the center of this thing, then nothing else is going to work. Well, you know, it's interesting. As a CEO, you know there are a thousand decisions made every hour. Yeah, and and you realize that nine hundred ninety nine of them are made when you're not in the room. Right. So you are totally dependent on others for your performance, totally. And so if you're totally dependent on others for your performance, you better take care of the others. So when I talk about leadership now and even then, I I would talk about, look, it's all about the people. Hmm. I always found if I took care of the people that I worked with, they took care of me and they took care of the agenda of the enterprise. In my opinion, it's naive to think any other way at least if you're trying to build an enduring proposition. Hmm. I gave a speech in Italy uh, last year, and I talked about the big measure when I started as a CEO was total shareholder returns, TSR. And it was basically the return on the shareholder's investment was what you lived and died by. And my observation is that in today's world, society is looking for more than that. And, and, I I would call it total stakeholder returns, Hmm. like all the people that have a vested interest in the enterprise. And of all of them, there's only one group that touches everyone, and that's the employees. Hmm. In my opinion, if you want to take care of all stakeholders, you've got to take care of employees first. And you've got to make sure they're the very best at what they do and that they're committed to doing with distinction. And by that, I mean that they're competent and they do it in a high character fashion. I mean- as a, I mean, you can you can be a great leader, and have an amazing strategic mind, right? An amazing sort of brand management perspective. You can you can cut, you can um, shed businesses, you can you can. There's lots of tools you have in your toolbox, but it sounds to me that your approach really is focus on on employee morale, focus on the people in the company first, and then worry about the other stuff next. Is that is it right? Uh, oh, I bring more of an abundance mindset to that work. Mm-hmm. I do focus. I mean, you got to do. You got to focus on the strategy and the people, and you got to do it in a highly iterative way. So it's not like you can just focus on one and then focus on another. Yeah. It's a it's a complex operating environment. But I I do believe that uh, to create a leadership culture, uh, a highly competent culture, I've I've written about this. I think you need to have three things and then have the wisdom to leverage them at the right time. (laughs) I do think you need IQ, EQ, and something I call FQ. You've got to have this ability to process information quickly and think clearly 
Uh, you need IQ, but you also need to be able to process information about individuals and groups and nuances effectively, too. And then you need what I would call FQ, which is this functional quotient, like if you're running a sales organization, you better damn well figure out how to run a sales organization. Mm. You need to know sales. And so it's this IQ, EQ, and FQ, and then it's the nuanced, the wisdom you develop over time of how, how do you find ways to leverage all that to bring your sense of vision and your purpose to life. So it's a messy process, but uh, uh, I, and I think you have to look at it all simultaneously. Doug, when you think about, uh, and I think I think I know the answer to this. When you think about the trajectory of your career, do you think you were born a leader, or do you think you learned how to become a leader over the course of your career? I get this. I am involved in this conversation a lot in the leadership discussion. People can be born uh, with certain uh, uh, gifts for leadership, but I, I think leaders are made, and I think you've got to work at it, especially today. Uh, you've got to be intentional. You've got to have your act together before you hit the ground running. You know, when I started and a lot of the people you've interviewed, I, would, I respect them, but I would say they largely practice seat-of-the-pants leadership. Uh, and based on experience, and that that was good enough. But I think today things are moving so fast. The seat of the pants leadership does not serve the enterprise well. I think you have to be more intentional. I think you have to be more planful and in a way that allows you to move and shake and maneuver on a dime because of all the things coming at the organization. So I, uh, my vote is that uh, great leaders are made. That's Doug Conant. He's the former CEO of Campbell Soup Company. He stepped down as CEO in 2011. And since Doug left, the company continued its upward trajectory, reaching its highest stock price ever in 2016. Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. The music for this episode was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top from Luminary Media and Built It Productions. Generative AI is not a one-size-fits-all. If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill. And Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today.